Welcome to The Doctor Is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Sharif Akili, resident physician at Stanford Hospital and investor at Polaris Partners. Join Sharif in exploring the extraclinical practice of medicine as he interviews healthcare leaders who have gone from bedside to build companies, run health systems, spearhead public policy, and pursue many other paths where they lend their unique bedside perspectives. Today's guest is an internist and the chief medical officer of Stanford Healthcare, Dr. Neeraj Sagal. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. For the first time ever since the pandemic started, I'm able to introduce him in person next to me as opposed to virtually. Our guest today is the chief medical officer for Stanford Healthcare, the former chief quality officer at UCSF a professor, an internal medicine physician, and all-around phenomenal human being, Dr. Neeraj Segal. Thanks for taking the time to join me today on the podcast. Thanks, Sheriff. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Neeraj, a goal I have for our conversation is to share for our listeners who are largely medical trainees what it's like to be a CMO of an academic medical center, what the job description is and how that might differ, here versus you know, non-academic health systems and so forth. But in order to set the stage for that, could you share your roots with our listeners and tell us a little bit about like the age-old question of how you found yourself in medicine, what your journey through medicine has been like, and how that journey sort of has shaped up against your original plans? Yeah, of course, Sheriff. Well, I suspect I'm not the first person to say that the path has not been linear. Um, lots of serendipity, and partly what I'll try to convey is places where our being intentional is helpful and actually allowing serendipity to also guide some of it. And I'll start by saying, if you'd asked me five years ago, was my life plan to become a chief medical officer? The answer would have been no. I would have been surprised this is where I would sat. So I will start with that and then uh, go back to answer your question. Yeah. So like most folks, maybe before getting in medicine, most of what drives most of us are the values that are part of what we grew up with. Um, so I grew up as a regenerative immigrant. My parents immigrated in the 60s from India. And I start with that because we lived in very urban Chicago. And so when I think about a lot of my upbringing and I reflect on this a lot now having kids myself is how much of what I learned during my childhood has influenced who I am as a person, who I'm as a physician and who I aspire to be as a leader. Um, and so some of that are kind of values I watched with both my parents who were working full time, working together, managing a family. Um, values around community like when i think about my parents having come halfway around the globe leaving everything behind and you know taking chance taking risk um being comfortable with failure uh understanding that you can change the work you do you just try not to change who you are and those values become really core and i think a lot about how grateful i am to my parents for having instilled a lot of those opportunities it doesn't mean every part of life was easy or that i'm grateful for so much opportunity and privilege i had growing up but also seeing how much how little my parents needed to provide what I really described as an amazingly happy home. And so I think a lot about that when I translate even to my current job, as we yeah. may talk about further. Um, so medical training, I guess the couple interesting parts of the story was one, I did not know I wanted to go into medicine. So I started in college as an economics major. Oh, cool. And I was in St. Louis. And uh, ultimately, when I finished college, I ended up with a combined biology and business degree, which in retrospect, seems like it was really intentional given the role I'm sitting in now, but it was not. And part of what I really loved about the intersection, I, I love the science. I honestly, I didn't know if I would fit in with all of the other pre-med mm -hmm. students. And I really struggled. I'm like, they just felt like not the ecosystem I wanted to be yeah, in. Yeah, it's a tough ecosystem. And, and I, of course, now you and I both know that, that some of what you learned in those pre-med classes was not reflective of the career we have <laughs> yeah. chosen to do. And I just didn't know that at the time. And so the mm -hmm attraction into some of the business was really not about business per se, it was about what I was learning, organizational behavior, um, different lenses into policy. And I wasn't getting the sciences, I was getting that more through the, the business lenses. So when I finished college, um, it actually took me two years to get into medical school. So I applied over two years to probably 55 different medical schools. Wow. At the time it was all paper-based. I did not get into any medical schools my first time applying. Wow. My second time applying, I got a single interview at Rush uh, and I got in off the wait list. And I share the story only because one, it's my immense gratitude for the medical school that gave me an opportunity, but it also really helped set the stage for me trying not to take anything for granted. Um, it's not that I, wouldn't have found my way in doing other things in terms of that time, but I, I'm not sure, I, I didn't come saying, 
I want to be a doctor. I didn't have any physicians in my family. Um, I think what I was gravitating to is I liked the intersection between kind of the science and the people uh, at the beginning. And that was initially where I was like, okay, maybe I'll apply for medical school. Uh, and particularly by the second time I applied after spending a year kind of doing research and other, other work, trying to find myself a little bit. Um, the, the medical school, when I started, I remember vividly uh, a little bit of like, apathy is a strong word, but kind of apathy amongst many others in my class for almost like they didn't took for granted what it took to get yeah. into the classroom. Yeah. And I think I always use that in some ways as a part of an internal motivator for, I needed to prove that I belonged. Um, and that'll be a theme I'll touch Aww. on. Um, and I had an amazing medical school experience as a result. And well, that, I, that's such an encouraging story and it takes so much courage to be able to do that again. And I hope if others are listening who are struggling through that, it's one of the toughest, most existentially daunting things to have to reapply to medical school or reapply to residency yeah. or whatever even path you're picking. So, you know, I love that you've been able to show that you could become the chief medical officer of Stanford Healthcare and maybe at the first time you apply to something people may not yeah. see, you know, or that journey may not be immediately apparent how you'd be able to fit and create the contribution at the institution. Anyway, it's just yeah. it's so humbling. Well, I appreciate it. I, I think the, the lesson back to the parental values of, it obviously felt like a big personal failure. And so in some ways yeah. we, as a general leadership lesson, which I'll get to as well is, I think we often, because of often how we're wired, we, we tend to think more about the failures than the successes. We think about yeah. the patients where we miss something more than the patients that we diagnose correctly on day one. And I think that general principle is laid out. Um, so I, again, I, medical school is an amazing experience. I was in Chicago, I had this, all my community around me. And when residency time came, I, as a general theme, really loved the idea of being a generalist. Um, I loved the breadth. I was always comfortable at having people that knew more than me around me. In fact, I kind of enjoyed that. And again, a theme that you'll hear me talk about in my current job. Um, and so the generalist career just felt like a really natural fit for, for internal medicine. Because of my medical school admission process, when I started applying for residencies, uh, I didn't believe anyone anyone told me, including my own medical school, of like, I think you're gonna be fine, you'll be competitive to go wherever you want. And I'm like, mm. people largely stay in Chicago, so all right, I'll put, I'll put this like dream thing on my, on my match list, which was Stanford. No way in a million years thinking that I would land at Stanford um, coming from a medical school I was really proud of, but it was not a medical school that often landed people at places like Stanford. Uh, and so I landed here, and I've often said, and I said this actually when I first interviewed for this role I'm in now, that part of my desire to come back to Stanford was because the greatest gift Stanford gave me was um, removing a, a ceiling I had self-imposed. And part of that, again, get back to like the first week of medical school felt like the first week of residency of being surrounded by folks wondering, how do I prove that I belong here? And a little bit of the imposter syndrome. Yeah. And so I think I similarly, not as a form of pity, but more as a form of, I guess, a little bit of my internal motivation to continue to not take things for granted. And I hope you would say the same, but like, I had literally the most amazing residency experience here. I love the people I met, the environment was rich. Um, and I think, again, it just cultivated and opened up so many ideas and windows of different phenotypes of work that I could do. And so I was here as a resident. I was fortunate to have an opportunity to be the chief resident. Yeah. And then the first inflection point, and I'll touch on a couple inflection points to uh, round out this question, which is the first inflection point was I, Stanford was a very research intensive organization. It still is, but it was even more so uh, back in 2000. And I wanted to stay here. So I uh, did a, a kind of a general medicine fellowship, a postdoc at the Stanford Prevention Research Center. And Stanford doesn't have a school of public health. So I had an NIH training grant and one of the best pieces of advice I got and thankful for many mentors here who helped make it organizationally happen. So I took my NIH training grant and they allowed me to go to Berkeley and do a public health degree. And the reason I did it, much like my comment about the business classes in college was, I loved all my fellow physician colleagues, but I really felt like the best way for me to have broader views into health and other lenses into health was being surrounded by other people who are bringing it from different perspectives. And so the year of the year at the public health school was like transformative, um, particularly now when you put it in pandemic context, but even back then, just the earliest times for me to really start making distinctions between health and healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, social determinants, language we weren't even really using in delivery right. systems in 2000, but I think it really opened my eyes and changed my lens to how I started thinking about work. So when I finished my fellowship, which was very research intensive, I was doing what every good research fellow did. I had my K award, I was gonna write the K award, and that's when I made the transition from Stanford to UCSF, because uh, my clinical area of interest was really doing 
hospital medicine. And I was starting to think about systems and improvement, again, with language that was just starting in the quality and safety movement. Um, and what drew me there was, uh, I at the time, hospital medicine was a fairly new field. Um, here at Stanford, I think there was a large appetite to kind of grow a hospital medicine program in 2000. Fortunately, you and I are living in a different world mm -hmm. now. And I went to a place that was one of the first academic hospital medicine programs. And I think what resonated for me in my early career years as a hospitalist was uh, the notion of taking care of two patients, the patient in the bed and the hospital that patient was sitting in, mm -hmm. and treating the hospital and the system in the same way we thought diagnostically as internists of taking care of patients. and. It really opened up just the idea of what I really love, which is the generalist approach to complex problems yeah. of thinking about policy and behavior and culture and systems and checklists and you know all the different components that put my career really around kind of quality and safety more broadly defined and the intersection between that. So again, a lot of the, my career at UCSF, I would say, while I had different titles and roles from section chiefs to division roles, department leadership roles, most of the focus was really in two things was I wanted to be doing work that helped make the delivery system better or I wanted to train and develop others who had the same passion. And so a lot of my work was in medical education. I ran a lot of leadership development programs for physicians, partly because I was benefiting from so much of those skills that were just not even discussed when you were, going, at least for me, were going through medical training. Um, so yeah, fast forward, I mean, I think that was a lot of the journey uh, that before coming returning to Stanford was really a career that I felt so grateful, had amazing mentorship, amazing opportunities. And in some cases, the lesson for me was sometimes I had mentors who saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. And so sometimes that would be like, Neeraj, you should really help lead this task force. Well, do I really want to do that? Like, I'm not really that interested in the topic. Um, and I can vividly think of one example, which was leading a medication outcomes uh, initiative. And I thought to myself, well, I love safety, but I don't have, I have a particular passion for medication safety. And I did it, and I led the initiative. It was a grant for a year. And I realized in retrospect, what my mentor was having me do was not about the content. It was about, this was gonna be your opportunity to help lead a multidisciplinary group of people through a complex, a complex change initiative. He just didn't frame it that way to me, but that's in fact the experience. And so I, I think it allowed me to realize it was less about the content and more about the change management. Um, yeah. And so over time, while my roles in quality and safety were really different, the last inflection point, of course, was then Having left the traditional academic roles when I was an associate chair in the Department of Medicine, um, I really saw myself as kind of blending the missions together for quality and safety, which I loved. And the inflection point was when the chief quality officer was established at UCSF Health, and I helped write the job description with no intent to apply. And hmm. then ultimately was encouraged that I should apply. I'm, of course, grateful I did. And so that was the role I had prior to coming back to Stanford, which in some ways was a perfect marriage and blend of content I loved and I'd been spending, you know, at that point, 12, 15 years of my career focused on, uh, allowed me to grow as a leader tremendously because I had a large group of people I had an opportunity who I felt responsible for, responsible for their day-to-day -day happiness, their success. And that was a big, big transition to just learning how to go away from managing projects to portfolios of projects to actually managing people, uh, which is a lot of what the large leadership roles are. Um, and so again, felt really, really privileged to have the time I did at UCSF. And as I started with my earlier story, that was the motivation to come back. It wasn't about the role, it was really about coming back to a place that was, was great to me as a trainee. This is amazing. I wanted to double click in this exact moment here. So the role of a chief quality officer, you're a chief quality officer at yeah. UCSF. The, the role that you had created and then served, was there a natural transition between all of the quality and safety research you had been doing from the time as an MPH, as well as the Change, man change management you were starting to do in your role academically, and I bet there's change management even as like a chief, as a you know chief resident here too. Um, uh, but was that a natural fit, or did that did the job description of the chief quality officer end up being a lot different from what you had done before, or what you had envisioned? Yeah, it's a great you question. Could sort of talk yeah, yeah, about absolutely. What that role it's is. a great question, and in some ways, I didn't touch on the chief residency, but I, I will highlight that actually. My, the study I did during the chief residency was uh -huh. actually on the chief residency experience. And, and I, bring uh -huh. it up, I bring it up because in some ways what that year taught me was, uh, and I studied back looking at the, like, the previous 100 chief residents at Stanford. And we did Whoa. a survey study and asked them, um, how did you feel like you spent your time during your chief residency? Clinical care, research, education. At the time we called it administrative and I'll come to why I'm not a fan of that particular term because mm -hmm. administrative as opposed to a leadership role and I'll talk about why that, that distinction is important. 
and it turned out for folks that actually perceived that they spend more of their time doing administrative work, their satisfaction in the cheap runs zero was actually far less. Mm -hmm. And I remember being struck that that wasn't actually my experience, that what many people described as administrative for me were actually leadership opportunities, you know, chair this, lead that, have, be a fly on the wall to watch like the meta cognition of watching how decisions were getting made, which is this amazing opportunity to cheap resident where you're not accountable or responsible, but you get to sit at all these tables with amazing leaders to watch them. So I would say that that milieu was a really big part of, if I look back, kind of lessons learned. To your chief quality officer question, one of the advice, piece of advice I've often learned when taking new roles is um, every job has a job description, yeah. but the job description doesn't have to define you or the role. You have an opportunity to define the role. Yeah. And so what I mean by that is the job description of the chief quality officer for me, the concerns I had about it, Sheriff, was that I was worried that the role would force me to spend most of my time in the regulatory space of quality and safety, which isn't where I thought the biggest influence and change could happen for the organization. And the mistake I almost made was not allowing myself to step into that role because of the misplaced fear that I'm gonna spend my entire time chasing metrics that are red and force mm -hmm. them to be green because that's all people will care about. And that wasn't my experience in the role. And again, I, my approach to the chief quality officer role may have been different than other people's approach to the chief quality officer role, but the way I saw the role was the way I described before. I saw it as a platform to have a larger impact to help make the care delivery system better and help develop in particular more physician leaders who wanted to do that in that work. And so it allowed that platform. The biggest leap in terms of leadership learning for me yeah. was going from having in my department role, you know, five or six person team, uh, it was intimate, it was small, to all of a sudden having a couple hundred people, just the scaling of recognizing you can't be as intimate with every single person in the organization. So how do you set culture norms as a leader in a different way, and of course I didn't do it by myself. I had amazing coaching, I had mentoring, I made mistakes. You're constantly much like we do in clinical medicine, right? You force time to say, what could I have done differently and better? I think those same principles in, in being a clinician applied for me and how I found my approach to kind of the leadership. And so that role was, an answer to your question, was in some ways a culmination of the research evaluation, medical education focus I'd spent doing quality and safety, and now actually, huh, how will that translate if I actually do it in a delivery system role? And, most people would tell you there, it didn't change how I did it. It just changed the table I was sitting at and where, where I could do it. Did you feel that because you created the job description and sort of created the job, it was a more smooth transition for you or not necessarily? So it wasn't so much that I created the job description. I think what I meant by that was yeah, the, yeah. the strategic plan that was happening at UCSF mm -hmm. Health to kind of become a larger academic health system, much like has happened here at Stanford. One of the needs that was identified through a, part of that strategic planning was mm -hmm. a, a role for a chief quality officer. And so I was one of many people that was asking the question of, okay, if we're gonna have this role, what should the role be? What, what are the expectations of the role? That was the contribution yeah. to kind of the So the I guess you didn't it. really have somebody else to mentor you who had done the job beforehand. You were really like yeah. crafting this based on, an, an, you know, it sounds like this is like a role that has precedence and expectations. Yeah, at the time there were not, that many um, of them everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. They had started developing, but I, th I think part of the benefit, much like when I came into this role, was you start building your network in different ways, right? Yeah. So I, my quality and safety network was pretty broad already. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, many of those same people had gone through the same transition I had, which is they started becoming chief quality officers in their, in their own institutions. So I, it almost embedded a network for me. And then I started getting in more organized with the AAMC and Vizient and chief quality officer network groups that was really, really helpful to me to both pseudo-normalizes the experiences I was having, um, as well as just frankly having like support group and problem solving. Hey, how are you approaching X or Y? Right. And some of those folks have become really amazing friends and others like we, you know, one of the things we love about academic medicine is you can build a network and community and as your own work changes, the networks are all there. Just gotta, find like-minded people. It's, 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 it's part, of the, part of the fun. Yeah, so then how does that compare then to the role of a chief medical officer what do you think prepared you for that? Where were your you know, <laughs> yeah. big learning curves there? So again, a really good question. Um, I'll answer it in, in the way I, I see my role. And the sure. reason I say that is because I suspect if you were meeting, it's a little bit like how many dentists approve the fluoride in, in, the, in the toothpaste, uh, seven out of 10. <laughs> oh, I think if you talk to 10 CMOs, you may get mm -hmm. 10 slightly different job descriptions, not at the high level of being, being the clinical and physician leader for the delivery system, but more at, 
what areas of oversight do they yeah, have? There's sense. lots of variation. So the couple things unique about the role here that I really love, um, one of course, the most important was I wasn't looking for this role. I'd never applied for anything outside of UCSF in 17 years because I was super happy. Uh, this was about coming back to a place that was that created so many opportunities for me. So this is really about coming back to serve an organization that I felt had given so much to yeah. me. And the role itself was not one I actually intended that I thought I would actually land in when the process started. I just had never even done the process of interviewing for a role outside. Mm -hmm. So I really thought it was going to be a learning experience. And it wasn't until very late in the game where I, you know, told my wife, I'm like, you know this thing I've been doing on the side? Well, somebody may actually think I could be do the job. We should probably sit down and actually talk about whether this is the right thing for us and, mm. and family. Um, so the things that are unique here, is, so, as you point out, I have the chief medical officer for Stanford Healthcare, but I also have a senior associate dean for clinical affairs and school of medicine. Mm. So that is not true in every system. Um, I describe my role here, Sheriff, as I feel like I'm, the, I'm an integrator. So my role is to integrate between the different missions. Now, that's how I see it. That doesn't mean every CMO would see it. And part of having the dual titles inherently allows me to do that. And so what I mean by that is if I'm sitting at the leadership of the hospital and delivery system, uh, while I'm sitting there because I'm the CMO of SHC, I'm often inherently wearing my School of Medicine senior associate dean hat to bring that perspective. If I'm sitting in the dean's office, I'm there because I'm the senior associate dean, but I'm often trying to wear my SHC hat because part of what I love about the roles I've had in quality and safety is the notion of being a bridging leader bridging the different missionaries. So in that way, this role, at least the way I've embraced it and the way I'm approaching it, is actually no different. I am. I feel like, not just me, but my team, how do we become the bridging integrators? Because I think that's what the organization, the broader organization needs of us, is how do we do what every place is struggling with, which is the clinical environment is growing, the clinical growth is there. How do we do that in a way that's meeting the needs of our patients and communities and still support the amazing research, education, training programs? and that is right that's the holy grail how do you do it in a, in a large academic health system that's trying to go from being a boutique academic hospital to an academic medical center to a regional academic health system mm -hmm. right i mean that that journey that many places have gone on for me that's the so one that's that's how i view my role the other part of exciting is the timing that i think you know you're watching this happen is we're at a big transition point let's put the pandemic aside but yeah. just the transition point for stanford in an academic health system and to me, that, that's fun. Like, I like the complexity, I like the challenges, I like the problems. It gets back to the generalist part, part of my clinical training, and that's what part of what makes the role, role fun. So the blocking and tackling is so what, what, what's in my umbrella. Um, I have a lot of the quality and safety teams, I have the GME leadership, uh, a lot of the medical informatics, and then I have kind of operational leaders, uh, associate chief medical officers that help support ambulatory inpatient interventional platform. And in most cases, what I'm trying to really instill is a leadership team that's doing the integration, that's bringing a clinical and physician voice, and equally importantly, building really strong partnerships with our operational leaders. So that way, the dyad model, and it's not often two people, it could be more than two people, but the idea of how do we bring different perspectives to the various problems so that we're solving in the more meaningful ways. And so that's some of the engagement, engagement opportunities that I certainly am trying to build more of here in the time I've been so far. So then thinking about that vision and where Stanford's growing and, uh, going and growing, uh, what do you feel like your specific nearage contribution is going to be where you feel like you have this vision and you're bringing it in and you're sharing it and how does that fit in with the journey of Stanford within the next few years? Yeah, if you can absolutely really pu push on that. Yeah. One. So I'll uh, so I'll answer it in two ways. So one, yeah. one is, and you know this, you know, when you come to a large, complex organization like ours, it's rarely about a single person's vision. Um, yeah. So do you which, feel like you can't? This is like about listening more than and like seeing, or mm. as opposed to your own. No, I think. Particular what I, no, no, I think it's both. It's both. So the oh, question is okay. a fair one. I, I guess what I was starting with is that oftentimes the question will come of like, mm -hmm. what's your personal vision, which I think is a really good and important and a, a question, but recognizing to where you were going is part of coming in new in the role, and I've been here you know, just under a year and a half, I've been here largely through pandemic wave after pandemic wave, so <laughs> yeah. a lot of the crisis, which is a different part of the conversation we can have of like, what do you learn and how do you learn yeah. about an organization when you come in during periods of crisis? But I think to the vision question, if, I, if you ask me and my team, like where are the areas of focus I'm putting on? I've often focused on three. So one is I wanna build a continued pipeline for physician leadership of people who want much like me, want to be integrators. 
Um, and so that's through how we think about medical directorships. That's how I think about my team. How do we have more physician voice in different places? So a place where I can have a very direct impact in uh, is building just the physician leadership pipeline. And I've said this, one of my markers for success is when the dean and CEO decide I'm no longer the right person for this role. Not only do I want 10 people here internally who could do it, but I want 10 people who really want to do it, who are as enthusiastic about the opportunity as I certainly am. Um, the second uh, here in terms of an area where I'm probably putting a lot of my own personal time and interest is in the health equity space. So mm -hmm. health equity was a space I worked in as a chief quality officer at UCSF Health. Um, obviously the pandemic has accelerated so much of what's been around for two decades and gets back to my public health comments earlier yeah. of, you know, 15 years ago, the distinctions between health and healthcare were not, not distinct healthcare systems to say, well, that's not our problem to solve, that's yeah. in the community. And I'm grateful we're now in a very different place. And so health equity is a place where I'm trying to really help push and catalyze both time, people, resources, and a convening to build a health equity strategy for the delivery system. And we you know, recently have just organized a bit more around some of that strategy. And the third one, which is broad, but in terms of the vision, I would say, Trev, is thinking about what I like to call care model redesign. Um, so we can talk about that in lots of different ways, but you know, think about what's happened, not just here, but in many academic health systems. Smaller hospital clinical footprints where they were maybe 100% dependent on the residents and fellows in the building, as they've grown, it's no longer possible to be doing all the clinical care purely by residents and fellows, nor should it be. Um, so we start thinking about what are the other ways we can be best providing care for our patients and our communities more broadly. And so, you know, you've watched that happen here. There's roles for advanced practice providers. There's roles for mm -hmm. more direct care, which was not a model that existed in a lot of academic places. There's taking the existing people we have and say, how could we organize the services different? How do we organize the clinic differently? And so I think one of the places where I try to play a role is when I have an opportunity to sit in so many different venues. It's not about having the answer, because as I've joked, Every meeting I'm in, there's always people on it who know far more than I do. So for me, as I've learned, for me, it's the key is asking the right questions, not having the right answer. And so the questions for me around care model is, have we thought about, or what is our approach to, or how could we do it differently? Because that's, that's the behavior and muscle we want to build as an organization so that we can say, we've done this this way, it's worked really well, we're in a different time, how could it work differently? So mm -hmm. those are three of the areas that I would say that I certainly putting more time and attention. I love that. I, among those three, is there one that you feel Stanford will experience the most growing pains in pushing forward or an academic medical center usually confronts the most growing pains? Just a curiosity. Yeah, I think that they all have growing pains for different reasons. I mean, the, yeah. the one that has the, the most, I guess, I don't know about growing pains, but the most opportunity to more quickly transform, which we've mm -hmm. done some of already, is really around the physician leadership pipeline, the physician voice, mm -hmm. and we've done a lot of different ways to have a lot of the physician leaders more engaged, and it's not that we're done and not that there's more to do, um, but I think that that one has a lot of legs behind it, yeah. and part of that's just how my team's organized and how we're leveraging the various department and divisional leaders, and again, we're really lucky here. We have so many talented physician leaders, so for me, that's about community building and engagement, again, getting back to family values. Like That's my view of take people that are talented, put them like-minded, build communities, and you know, kind of get out of their way and remove barriers. I think the health equity and care model redesign will both have growing pains and probably for different reasons, yeah. right? The care model changes have growing pains because you're, the analogy I sometimes use is the Henry Ford quote where uh, if you spend all your time making the horses run faster, you never spend time designing the new car. Yeah. And what happens, and I yeah. watch this happen here, is that, you know this, like to spend time doing the design the new car comes at the expense of, well, we're not making the horses run fast enough and there's always tension on that. So yeah. I always describe because there's a healthy tension. And so Correct. the growing pains there is how do we create space to do the more efficient, faster horses, but also recognize we have this amazing opportunity called the pandemic that's forced us to think different about care models and not lose it so we don't go back to pre-pandemic. Like I've said this all the time, like we keep talking about going back to normal. Like, the last time I checked, people weren't thriving in the previous normal. So why are we talking about going back to normal? What we should yeah. be talking about is how do we actually take this to create a, a much better future? So on the care model redesign, I think that's some of the healthy tension is making things work better that you and I both know need to happen. And let's take a step back and really think about something different. And that changes people's roles. It changes how people are compensated. It changed, I mean, that's where the growing pains happen. Can I actually, I, I want to yeah. double click on that. Um, because one of the curiosities I always had too is, I love this horse and car analogy. It reminds me a lot, in business school, um, they taught us the works of this really 
remarkable human being. He passed away recently. They questioned Clay Christensen, who had okay. You're well, familiar. if you're you're in my office, so you can see I have a couple. I have a I have a couple. Here. I have a couple of his books on my bookshelf. So I'm, I'm a, a fan of a lot of his teachings and, and writings. So you you know this concept then you know, for our listeners around how firms become disrupted yeah. when they do what's really profitable for them in the moment, um, and it takes away you know profits and resources to invest in the thing that could be profitable tomorrow and sometimes you can end up resting on your laurels and um, become disrupted. Yeah. This is like really a super overgeneralization, frankly. Um, but one of the things I was, was curious about is you know, Stanford, we're in a provider controlled market. We have um, real strength and things are working really well for us. I feel so privileged to work here. I think my ability to get an incredible job where I can practice medicine the way I want and even during the pandemic, never have to worry about an N95 or like when, you know, we had our swab shipment shipped over to the east, we like 3D printed our own swabs. It's like crazy how fortunate we are here. Yeah. Do you see anything, particularly around care model redesign, that could um, we could miss as a result of um, the fact that we're so good at making this horse really, really fast? Yeah, I mean, no, no question, right? So this is a little bit of the intersection between what are the things we can control locally around care model redesign mm -hmm. versus, as you know, Trevor, these are other other podcasts you've hosted, which is the broader questions around how healthcare is financed. Yeah. And right. So yeah. we're we're often struggling between the how healthcare is financed and does it foster the right behaviors and incentives or does it create the unintended consequences? Um, I mean, I, I come back a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of the Clay Christensen, like go back to doing the right thing, right? It's a little yeah. bit of what yeah. what allows leaders and a little bit of Enron stories of what what allows leaders to start doing the wrong thing as well. If you start being motivated and incentivized by the wrong things, you start doing making the wrong decisions. And so I, I really try to keep it back grounded in terms of the, the values built from a leadership perspective, but also from a patient and provider perspective. And I say both because I don't feel like often it's, it's sincere to just say well, it's only going to be patient-centered, which of course is what we all want to see happen. But we live in a complex environment and we know that if we do something that is patient-centered, but it comes at the expense of the providers around you and I both know if you're a provider who feels like the system is not set up to help you do the right thing, it's really frustrating. And so it's a little bit of the you know, transition from the triple aim to the quadruple aim. Like how do we actually create a care model that doesn't feel like three different strategies? So I'll give you an example of what's happened here recently, which mm -hmm. is we have a population health strategy, we have a digital health strategy, we have a wellness strategy, right? And all really, really important. Um, my fear always is if we talk about each of those individual strategies, the population health strategy is basically forcing us to think about care models in different ways. Well, when we've done that, big surprise, it has an adverse impact on some of our providers and their wellness, yeah. right? So you have a dip. Same thing with digital. We, yeah. we create a lot of digital health strategies. It's great. Some of them are great for patients. They're great for a system, but they can have adverse effect on kind of the wellness, whether it's in basket and virtual. So my question is, how do you actually recognize there's a balancing act between those, which is a little bit of what you're asking. And so the growing pains are what those trade-offs look like and how do we make them visible and not be afraid to fail. Like it's okay if we, mm -hmm. you know, it's okay if we can try something um, and, and make sure that we're actually, and that's a lot of what we call, you know, our model line work of finding areas in primary care and especially area and say, let's really try to say, what could this look like differently and know where, where to pivot. So I think that's a, a bit of the, your care model question of kind of the, yeah. the tensions are really, you know, multifactorial. I, another thing I was curious about that this uh, goes into well is, you know, thinking about your role or even a hospital administrator's role um, for those who are passionate about fixing the challenges in the U.S. healthcare system. Do you think that um, this a hospital administrator role, whether a CMO role or a, a similar role? is a place where changes can be made to tackle some of the big issues? Or is that vantage a little bit too entrenched in the system to change it? And you really, you know, you don't want to be the person taking the big risk, capital R risk. Mm -hmm. You sort of have to follow a little bit and push the envelope in a little bit more, you know, um, you know pragmatic way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great question. I, I would say it's a little bit of trying to decide on an individual level, like where so I always frame it around where, where do you feel like you're going to learn and grow the most? So when I, when I look at different opportunities that come up, and this is no different than the advice I got when I was a resident, which is when you have opportunities come, how are they going to allow you to learn and grow in different ways? So, so I think where you sit in the broader healthcare ecosystem, 
you're making a choice about where and how you want to influence them, right? And not, none of them are perfect. Um, I think if I'd chosen a career that was more focused in policy, um, I think what I would have missed was the rolling up the sleeves and doing some of the operational stuff. And so I think for me personally, what I've learned over time is part of why I love being in the academic delivery system is because it allows me to do a little bit of the, you know, the analogy of going from the balcony to the dance floor. Like you can be in the balcony and be uh, strategic and use that part of how to influence care for a set of communities and patient populations. And I happen to be fond of the academic environment because it's where we have the tripartite mission. Um, I think for different people, the, what what drives them and where they feel like they can make an influence is going to be really different. Um, mm. I'm not active on social media. That's a choice I've made. Mm -hmm. uh, others have grown lots of influences, you know, by being a big voice, particularly in the pandemic, in the social media space. So I, I think for me, the answer to the question is a little bit of a personal reflective one, which is all of us can make an impact. And the question is, where where do we want to make that impact? And that Im impact may change over time. You know, where you start and where you finish, this is part of the fun of of the journey that I joked at the beginning. This isn't, if you'd asked me five or 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't have said I thought I was gonna end up in delivery system leadership roles. But 10 years ago, delivery system didn't look like they did now. And so for me, the opportunity to bring a physician and clinical voice into the delivery system is really fun. It's interesting. And I'm, believe me, I'm learning a ton. Like the problems that come up every day that I barely understand well enough to have an answer for is the same reason why the, the learning and growth is so significant and what makes it really really fun. I mean, I think this back to like the ward, the ward mode, like I'm, I'm going, I'm starting on service on Saturday. And I often translate this for the senior residents, like being a resident on a ward team is essentially a, a practice in leadership, right? You mm -hmm. have a team, you're trying to understand what do each intern and student need from a learning and development perspective, certain things you can do to set norms on the team, and then certain things you have to tailor based on people's learning and different styles and where they are. Same thing, you're sitting at the bedside on rounds, you're trying to match what does this patient or their family member need? I mean, if you frame back to my earlier comment, mm -hmm. these opportunities to lead a ward team are really opportunities in leadership, right? And if it's not if it's not framed that way, then you're not looking at it as a way to how to become a better resident leader on a ward month. And I often talk with the senior residents about this. Like, there's lots of ways you can build your leadership without even realizing you're building your leadership. And a lot of it is the way you lead a ward team. And so I think for me, the the framing of where you want to create influence, policy outside, is really a, it's a journey that. People have to kind of th think where they, where and how they want to make impact. For me, it's been, you know, ask me again in 10 years, we'll see if it's changed, but at least for now, I, I love being in the academic delivery system. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I honestly, I think about this oftentimes too, because, you know, we had on our, our podcast a guest, um, I don't know if you know Elizabeth Rosenthal, patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then she wrote American Sickness, which yeah. talked about these big challenges that really eat at your heart, you know? Um, and obviously she has a particular take on health system challenges, but you know, for me, an early stage venture, I feel like I have to sort of play a certain set of rules and I'm only gonna be able to work on the problems in one focus. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and anyway, I guess like, you know, neither you nor I will ever be able to, I don't know your thoughts on this, it's like a little provocative um, statement, but. I don't think I don't know. I don't think I'll ever be able to truly, for example, not saying this is um, a good thing, but like we couldn't. It would be very difficult for us to consider and think that the U.S. could should, for example, go to a single payer health system, mm -hmm. right? That would be very problematic for all the innovation in my portfolio companies, and it'd be very problematic. I bet for um, uh, Stanford and its business model as well as our entire health system. But you know, maybe there's if there's an argument to be made there, it's hard for us to to think about that. Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I was wondering if you, I guess I'm just spitballing here, but um, uh, I don't know if you've ever encountered that tension yeah. or um, how you think about, you know, the complexities and um, real, challenges in the healthcare system and how it can be broken, all the stuff that Elizabeth chats about, yeah. and then sort of the vantage that we have to tackle it at um, uh, and you know, stay optimistic about and serve our patients. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in some ways, uh, tying this question to your, your previous one, you know, part of what's so impactful about folks like Elizabeth and others who write incredibly 
powerful, impactful books is they start a dialogue and a conversation, right? And that, yeah. that, that influence is different than any influence because I'm pretty sure in my lifetime I will not be writing a book. So the influence, <laughs> influence is different. I guess the other way I think about your question, again, I'll put this back in the, yeah. in the, in the resident sphere because this was something I thought a lot about when I was a resident, chief resident, which is yeah. this idea of, you know, think global and act local. Yeah. Uh, and so part of what you're doing with your questions is you're trying to provide a larger context for what's happening around and then yet what can we do to make things better today? And to me, that's a little bit like the life of the resident, right? You're like, listen, this is the problem I have today. This is inefficient. It's not working. And yes, there's a larger ecosystem around it and there's probably reasons why it's not working. So how do I, how do I make it better in, in, small, in smaller ways? And I think that was advice I always received that I was grateful for, which is, you know, don't, don't stop doing what you're doing, which is taking a step back and asking the broader contextual ecosystem questions, but also honor and respect the fact that people want to see things better tomorrow. And sometimes I feel like we get so caught in the larger sickness, using that yeah, analogy, yeah. that we don't realize there's still ways to make things better. And yeah, it, yeah. it's not an it's not an or, it's an and. Yeah. And so we need to we need to do both. And I think for me as a general optimist, um, I think in roles you have you have to continue to feel like there's ways to empower people to feel like they can make things better. And again, I'll equate it to the resident team. One of the practices I used I often do is like it's the after the call cycle, right? Whatever. Q three, Q four after every call cycle, you can take a pause with the team and say, let's quickly reflect. We've been working together for four days. We've gone through one call cycle. Like, what do we feel like work is working well? What do we think we can do differently in the way we communicate? So again, these role modeling and small resident experiences are no different than, you know, you walked into my office, I was just coming from my team meeting office, and that was what we were just talking about. We were talking about a couple of complex issues in the in the system, and we were, I was asking, like, give me feedback. Like, what, what are we doing well? How could we better connect the right folks? So those behaviors, I guess I'd encourage the residents who are interested mm -hmm. in thinking about careers where they want to take on more. It's not for everybody. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Like yeah. for people that want to, don't lose the opportunity even in your residency in those subtle, subtle ways to actually feel like you're learning and developing uh, some of the questions you're asking. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. It's beautifully said. Um, uh, and the few minutes we have left, I actually wanted to go back and just for our listeners, um, clarify a couple of things I'd love to just understand about your role, actually. Um, very concretely, how often do you see patients? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so as a hospitalist, it's not as easy as you know to, you know, so I guess let me answer it in two ways. So one, I think as physician executive roles have gotten created in mm -hmm. larger health systems, there's always a healthy tension about how much clinical work. And I think there are many, I actually don't know the answer to this question, but I suspect if you surveyed CMOs across the country, there are probably some significant percentage who stopped doing clinical care. For me, um, that was never an option. I, I still love taking care of patients. Um, I think it also allows me to continue to feel connected to the organization and the things that got me into this in the first place. Do I do enough of it? Probably not. Do I wish I could do more? Yes. And so there's always a healthy tension and balance. Um, so it's hard to equate here the last year because the pandemic has, sure. of course, shifted it. Um, but you know, this this year I'll probably do about a month on the, mm -hmm. in the if I take the year in total. Is that enough? Is it not enough? Um, I think that's something I think through every every year of wh where can I find the time window. I'm super excited that I'm starting on service on Saturday because yeah. the window now after yet another wave of Omicron, like it just provides a different a different lens to it. And you know, I think everyone's different. It's much like the figuring out where where and how you do it. I, I think there are CMOs who have chosen not to do the clinical work um, for all very good reasons. I don't need to do it in terms of like, I shouldn't say I don't need to do it. It's, I have plenty of things on my plate that could keep me busy, Yeah, yeah, yeah. but right. this to me is such an important critical part. The last thing I will say, which is a different yeah. than your question is, yeah. many folks, when you're finishing your clinical training, they'll, a question I often get is, you know, I want to become an expert in X, Y, or Z, and the advice I got that I still think is true this day, if I think back to my first five to seven years on faculty, my biggest focus is I wanted to learn to be the best clinician I could be and the best teacher, because ultimately those two elements are what give you not just your own personal value system, but they actually give you both credibility, integrity, and people knowing that that's actually where you're coming from. And again, here I haven't grown up here in the system, so for me that's been a transition of coming here, whereas when I became Chief Quality Officer at UCSF Health, I grew up there as a faculty member, so most folks didn't see me in this titled role. It's yeah. Neeraj. Now he's doing 
he's doing his work from there as opposed to from here. Mm -hmm. um, so I think about that a lot of like that first five to seven years, even as you're building some other area of interest, not to minimize becoming a really outstanding clinician and teacher. Um, I'm, I'm most grateful for a lot of those, many of those early experiences that really influenced my later thoughts about delivery system. Yeah, so jumping off that for our trainees, I don't even know if this question is appropriate, the right one, but what do you think prepares someone most for the CMO career path? And you know, what is it the clinical training that really makes you prepared and good for this type of job? Or um, is it the pieces that you got when you did your public health work mm -hmm. and started taking more administrative work, uh, work and yeah. thinking about those learning curves? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So I, I think the path obviously looks different for different types of physician leadership roles, yeah. right? So if we were talking about a department chair role, that would have a perhaps a slightly different pathway. Uh -huh. um, I said let, maybe less than SEMO, but I think for folks that are interested in, in health system leadership roles, because yeah. yeah, yeah. to me the way that starts is often with the opportunity to be a medical director, um, yeah. right? Because then inherently what you're doing is you're taking some part of your time and you are providing leadership for a program or a clinical service or a clinic working closely with the interprofessional team to make that program or clinical area better, right? And so in some ways, the pathway is often um, le learning and getting those opportunities to step into health system leadership roles, and most often that's through kind of a medical directorship in many, in many organizations. Uh, I think to the broader question of how do you, if you're interested in that pathway, what do you do? I mean, some of the examples I've given, I mean, I would say even as you're a resident, just, just trying to be intentional on Okay, this month on wards, if I'm the ward resident, or I'm the, you know, the, the, the resident in, and this, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the interest in hospitals. I'm giving you that lens, yeah, of but course, this, obviously, this, is fantastic. this translates if you are a proceduralist in the OR or the endoscopy suite or the clinic. The idea that how do you intentionally not just think about ways to develop your clinical education research, but how do you actually develop your leadership skills? And sometimes that doesn't mean you have to take a full course or a book. Mm -hmm. It's just being intentional and saying, okay, how am I gonna, how am I gonna learn to lead a really effective meeting, yeah. and make that something you're gonna work on? There's how so many gonna, leadership right? opportunities so many, on the wards, and crazy, I think unless they're yeah. called, unless they're called out that way, yeah, you know, this like it almost gets forgotten. It's like kind of just what we do. So that's my that was the advice I wish I'd gotten more of, and advice I try to give now is literally treat components of your clinical experiences as a leadership opportunity, and if you do it, at least it allows you to ask questions in different ways like you pay attention to communication style you pay attention to preferences of how people interact with each other because ultimately when you get into leadership roles that are large executive ones back to the earlier comment you're largely managing people right you're trying to get people aligned you're trying to remove barriers and much of that is no different than we do as clinicians at the bedside you're trying to translate information between some people who have lots of context and know everything about themselves the patient and us as teams who are kind of seeing them at a certain cross-section in their in their life at least on the inpatient side and I think that taking advantage of those opportunities for me has always been something I think about a lot. And honestly, no different than when I, I hope go on service next week, which is I, I try to I try to bring that that lens to where I feel like I can teach because, you know, this all of you and your fellow residents like, we're lucky. People are so talented and smart and thoughtful. So you're trying to bring your own 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 place to kind of make people better. I, I love that advice. It's so actionable. It's so concrete, and it really resonates. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. Well, I think that's a good note to end on before my last question, which I ask everybody. I'm curious if you've given it some thought because I share it ahead of time. And so for our guests, we always have the question, um, uh, if there's anything you've encountered recently that you have found of interest or compelling or inspiring that you want to share, it could be a book, a TV show, a song, um, another podcast, work of research anything you know, that compels you um yeah it's a really I, I love the question but most i love hearing other people answer which is why you're asking because i think <laughs> you often get all these nuggets of really cool input inside um so on the book front i would say i am not a vociferous just reader in general except for things that are in the professional development scheme it's just one of the one of those my, my wife reads off her kindle uh, and so usually she's my screener for different books. But in the professional, I've been reading, the one I've been reading most recently is Adam Grant's new book, I think. And it, I'm not completely through it, but a part of what I have been, been thinking about it today, actually, with some of the elements of the how to unlearn 
Um, you know, when we when we get to and the joke in the patient safety field is we often talk about experience sometimes allows us to make the same mistakes with greater and greater confidence. Um, and so, how do we constantly kind of learn and create systems to check our own perspectives and our own ideas so we can unlearn things that we've learned? And I'm again, I'm kind of two thirds of the way through his book, and I've been thinking a lot about that. Even so, some of the questions you've been asking today of just assumptions about how healthcare is organized or care models are organized and why is that? Well, why have we learned that? Well, how can, and so I've been thinking a lot about just the reframing of questions in those conversations. And so again, Adam Grant's book is top of mind because I've been, I've been re reading it more recently. Um, so that, that on the professional I love side. That. Is Adam Grant that organizational economist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Organiz yeah. Organizational, yeah, he's written a number, a number of great books. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, again, you're sitting in my office, so I, I keep kind of the four or five books for me that have been the most uh, influential in others. And since we're talking about books, I think the other one that I, uh, Principally, not a lot was that was Daniel Pink's initial book Drive, just because I think mm. this idea of what motivates people and you know autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I have found that those that framework for me has always resonated and has been something I think about a lot as we try to you know think about people's behaviors and culture and organization. Um, on the fun side, you're sitting in front of me and I'm wearing I'm wearing my Chicago Cubs tie because it's open it's opening day, uh, and so I, I say that partly you know for me. Uh, my wife will often joke I have two moods, which is happy and tired. Um, <laughs> the exception being when I'm sitting in front of watching uh, my Chicago sporting teams. And so I say it jokingly, but I, it's for me, it's actually really, it's a helpful outlet. Like I, I, I feel like having played a lot of sports growing up, um, not playing them as much now, mostly out of in injury risk aversion. Um, but I think the sports stuff is just a really, for me, has been a really helpful outlet. And so again, today being a good example of, you know, Having have a lot of my friends in Chicago who are sitting at Wrigley Field for the home opener and getting and doing texting with them, so kind of ways and finding things that are compelling to each of us that also kind of bring fullness in our lives in another way, and that may be more of a pandemic-related response. Recognizing we all have sacrificed a lot during the pandemic. Should do it all the time. So I think it. bringing back some of yeah. those kind of tr traditions, uh, traditions mm -hmm. in different ways. I love that. Well, Neeraj, thank you so much for taking the time. It's an extraordinary privilege. I had so much fun. Thank you, Shav. I really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you doing this for all of us. I wish I had this when I was a resident to have had the benefit of hearing advice from many of the people that you get a chance to interview. That does it for this episode of The Doctors Out. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked or didn't like, or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info at tdio.org. 